thank you very much for having me. I, to be honest, I wish I was not giving this lecture. Uh, you know, uh, Shaybad was one of the people I admired. And uh, to me, it's a moment of chagrin to think that I'm giving the Shaival Gupta lecture. Shaival was just a few years older than me. So he's, for me, there's, there's no justice in the fact that we don't have him with us here organizing another lecture. Whenever we met, he, uh, he made me promise that I'll come back and give another lecture in Patna. And, you know, I always said yes, because I remember when uh, the few times I've been to Adri or a few times I've enjoyed this hospitality, it's always the first uh, international conference that was organized in Patna where I was present on development economics. I always found his company and uh, the intellectual environment he sustained stimulating. And I always said, yes, I'll come back. And I would have liked to have come back to see him and not, not for this. Um, Nonetheless, thank you for having me. Um, it's, he will be much missed. Um, this is a lecture that I uh, had given before, but I thought of it giving it here uh, because I think it's very close to Shaival's interest. Whenever we met, we talked about you know the history of Bihar and where it both the long history of Bihar, of course, which he was very proud of, the fact that this was, uh, you know, Pataliputra, and the more recent history and the history, you know, I'll come back to that, uh, the point he often made. Um, so I, 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 it, it may occur to me that it might be interesting to, to talk about this theme of, you know, history and the role played in history of of my history in development economics. So I, I think that it, it, I think there is a lot of, I think, interesting and important recent work by economists, uh, which are in a sense against development economics. Uh, so I, I think that there's, a, there's a, a, a large body of work which basically says that, you know, uh, the kind of, uh, activist policy-oriented work that we do, for example, in, in the Abdul Latif Jameed Poverty Action Lab is sort of beside the point because, you know, or that, you know, the, the, the various, diff the key differences that, you know, historians emphasize and development economics emphasize the difference in strategies. All of this is a little bit beside the point. Uh, if you like, there's no path but the path. Uh, and I, I think that line of research, um, I want to argue that he, while the important lessons from history, and, the, and I want to go back to Shaival's view that history was very important in Bihar, and I want to agree with that. I think there are, I would argue for a very different use and interpretation of the historical evidence. So I think here's the starting point. The starting point is a very important body of work, recent work, showing that the that history has, you know, you, you can't escape the history totally. The history does seem to have durable effects. And I'll come back to that point about durable effects uh, multiple times. And I think there is 
For example, there's work showing that countries that were colonized by the British have British-style legal systems. Countries that were colonized by the French have French-style legal systems. Uh, there is a labor laws in uh, Engerman and Sokolov's work suggest that labor laws uh, where, where the labor laws were set up to be more anti-labor, they tend to be more anti-labor over time. Um, this very important work by my colleagues, Asimo Blue Johnson and Robinson, um, suggesting something deeper, suggesting that, um, in fact, it's not just specific institutions, it's the whole culture, whole institutional frame that persists. So if you start in an institutional frame that's that's based on extraction by the colonists, then that remains, even though you're decolonized, the next generation, the post-independence uh, leaders adopt the same strategies and therefore the extractive institutions persist. We have, uh, this is an idea that, for example, I know that I talked a lot to uh, Shaibal about because we have a paper arguing using very, you know, very uh, local variation and micro data from India, suggesting that areas like Bihar, which had the zamindari system, have evolved very differently from the places in India which had the Rathwari system, like Maharashtra, parts of Madhya Pradesh, etc. So that this that it makes today, if you look at India at places that have the zamindari system and places that have the Rathwari system, the agricultural productivity, investment in fertilizers, etc., are still different. And they're different even though these places are just right next to each other. They might be a, across the border of a zamindari and a Rathwari area, you see differences. And this, this uh, I think we, we argue, is um, a result of, you know, maybe the class relations and the kind of the consequences of these kinds of institutions for the conf confidence of the, of the underclass and its relationship to the elites. And I think that argument, uh, so I, I, I absolutely believe in the long reach of history. These, these changes, uh, the Zaminati system and the Rathori system were completed in India by 1857. And you look at data in 1997, you see, you know, 200, 2007, that's 150 years later, you still see consequences of that. So I, I, I'm fully a believer in the long reach of history. Now, the question is, does that mean, that does, does that have to mean determinism? Does that have to mean that we are stuck where there's no alternative, that in some sense, there's no point in doing policy because, you know, good policy and bad policy don't matter. What matters is what happened with the kind of institutions you get from history. And if that's the case, then in some sense, the enterprise that I am involved in has no particular purpose. And indeed, the, the enterprise that many of you are, who are, uh, you know, working on development issues or working for the government of Bihar uh, are involved in also have no purpose because, you know, in the end, the big things can't be changed. I want to challenge that view. So I, I think this is very much a view that, of course, comes from Marx, which is that there are immutable laws of history. It's a view that has been, uh, you know, I mentioned the work of Asimoglu and Robinson, and they have, uh, they have, uh, 
very much adopted the Marxist view, but in some sense, they're much more pessimistic than Marx because they, they want to argue, um, Marx in some sense was arguing that there would be eventually a transition to socialism or at least a transition to capitalism would be, it was inevitable, that you can't, proper capitalism will arise out of feudalism. Uh, if you think of zamindari system as being um, a particular form of feudal rule, uh, capitalism will come out of that. Now, there's disputes about that. My point is not to get into the historical debates on this, but to say that what is the more modern view is more pessimistic. Because it says that, you know, uh, you, can, you don't actually need, there may well be that, you know, these transitions just don't happen. There's no necessity to the transition. Once uh, an oligarchy grabs power, so you, uh, they can just hold on to the power. They have economic power. Economic power gives you political power. Political power gives you economic power. You hold on to uh, authority. You you don't really get change, changes. And then I think that view is the even more pessimistic view. There is no move away from from oligarchic rule, from feudalism, feudalism can be stable. There's a parallel or set of arguments which are cultural, which say that, you know, uh, there is trust is important, culture is important, and uh, human relationship, the culture that, that uh, was formed at some point in reaction to something, but that can have durable effects. So, for example, I think there's very nice work by Nathan Nunn showing that regions in Africa that sent more slaves, where there were more slave slave uh, capturing violence, and these are often very close to each other, areas which were uh, where had slaves and didn't, they are, there's, there's, there are poor, they're poorer, and there's less trust in those societies. People are more suspicious of others. So that's a that's an interesting example. Um, there's an interesting work by Botticini and Eckstein showing that you know educational traditions in the Jewish community have persisted over thousands of years. One community was not often was deprived of its wealth, uh, of any other wealth. So they invested in education, and now that of course there is no legal way of you know, appropriating the ways, ways of the Jewish community, they couldn't just hold on to wealth like everybody else. They still invest in education. So in some sense, you create, out of economic necessity, you create a culture, but the culture persists. I want to argue that we do observe persistence. That was my point about the long arm of history. But it, there is no logical reason why persistence has to mean determinism. So for example, um, Things first, things could just be slow to change. We often, you know, you have to act to change. People have to decide to, you know, to make things different. And it may well be that it's just inertia that, you know, we haven't changed things because in India, I often feel that, you know, the way the government implements things is so much uh, a matter of tradition. We did things before. We haven't really thought about why we did this. This was evolved in the, you know, in British times when the colonial white administrator was suspicious of all his brown subordinates and he made rules to make them extremely accountable to him. And we, in some sense, have continued those rules, rules which are obsessively, um, you know, uh, sort of recording oriented. And, and I don't know whether there's, we have ever really thought about 
why our processes are the way they are. We did some work in Bihar. We're showing that if you just change the way in which um, Emma, uh, Narega payments are sent to the village, instead of this uh, randomized control trial made done by JPALs with uh, actually the Ministry of Rural Development in Bihar, showing that when you send money directly to the village rather than sending it through the district and the block, you save lots of money. The lots of money doesn't get lost along the way. Somebody doesn't pocket it. So, you know, these are processes, but we set up processes for often for very simple, you know, just purely inertial reasons. In addition to that, there are often coordination failures, which require a certain, you know, moment of, uh, of standing back. For example, you know, if I think that the other group is trying to get me, then I try to get them. And we can be fighting with over, over, you know, our particular parochial interests, let's say our caste group's interests, not necessarily because that all of us, we could all be better off kind of stopping the fight for a minute and thinking about what the fight means, but it's hard to do it because we feel that as soon as I stop the fight, the other guy will take advantage of me. So you need some pause and hitting pause is often difficult. So it's not that there is anything deeply sort of fundamental in society that makes us continue doing what we are doing, but we do it because we can't hit pause. And we need leaders often to just stop us and say, look, you know, let's take a, sort of a look back and see what, what, why we are acting the way we are. I mean, think of Gandhi as being, or and Ambedkar as being two people who essentially asked us to, to call pause on the way we have done things over historical, uh, over the historical past. And in some sense, I think that's, that's important. It's also important that even persistence that can be changed. And in some sense, the change is often uh, interesting. There's nice work, for example, by Kavan Munshi and, on, and, and Mark Rosenzweig uh, on caste networks in Mumbai. In caste networks in Mumbai, were very important in getting jobs. Boys from uh, certain caste, uh, families from certain castes would, would get jobs in factories because their parents, their father had a job in the factory, so they would get a job in the factory. As a result, these families didn't invest much in the education of their boys. When education was a, became more available for girls, they started investing in education of girls because the girls didn't have secure jobs. It's precisely because the boys had secure jobs that they didn't invest in this, uh, in the education of the girls. As a result, when, for example, uh, the, you know, the BPOs started in Mumbai and around Mumbai, the BPOs started hiring the girls because the girls were actually went to often went to English medium schools or they were just better educated. They were focused on education. Why? Because they were not promised the jobs. In the meanwhile, as you know, the, the mills all shut down in Bombay. So you ended up with the boys actually getting hurt by their initial advantage. They were, they were advantaged by their parents. The father was privileging their children, but that privilege actually undermined them in some interesting way. So I, I think that change is often the persistence doesn't necessarily give a guarantee that there isn't change. It's it's just the change happens in unexpected ways because certain 
traditions persist. I favor my boys, but that in, in the end ends up favoring my girls. Moreover, I want to say that, you know, there doesn't, I don't actually believe that there is that much determinism. So I, I, I think that there is actually now a whole body of work looking at what happens to countries when leaders die? And in particular, there's, I think, a very nice work of Ben Jones and Ben Olken. Uh, ben Jones is one of my students. Ben Olken is one of my colleagues at MIT. And what they show is that uh, when a leader dies, not you know where a particular leader dies, if you look at just the effect of, of change in leaders, when they die in a plane crash or some accident and a car accident, you see that countries actually perform differently after that. Sometimes you lose a good leader and things get worse. Sometimes you lose a bad leader and things get better. These are all deaths that would have, they're not people who got to 90 and died or old age, they're people who died by at an unexpected point of time um, at 45 and they died in an accident. And you see that the, those have long-term consequences. So in some sense, I think leadership uh, matters. What also matter, and again, despite the fact that we, we, we have, you know, for example, in India, we have an enormous amount of dominance of, by the male gender built into our, many of our cultural traditions. Um, there's lots of evidence showing that mandated representation of women in, in panchayats affected political decisions. And I remember when this work was being done initially, everybody told us uh, that this work is pointless. We know women cannot have exercise power. Their husbands, the Pradhanpatis, are exercising power. That was, uh, we were what we were told in Bengal, in Rajasthan, uh, wherever we did the work, we were told that. No, no, it's not true. When, when women are, when you change the rules, performance changes, outcomes change. Uh, you know, there's more investment in water, less investment in education. All kinds of things change. And, um, and there is similar evidence in Afghanistan where, again, when women are given power, despite it being one of the most uh, kind of traditionally oppressive societies for women, it turns out to have uh, consequences. I think that that's, uh, again, I, I don't believe in determinism. I think even though our rules change uh, sometimes by, you know, they don't necessarily change in systematic ways and they sometimes change, um, you know, change is often slow. Uh, we, 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 we haven't yet implemented the, you know, 74th Amendment. We, this is the 73rd Amendment that, uh, that generated the Panchayati Raj. Um, it, it really does make a, make a difference. Another example is, these are interesting examples. Uh, this is an example from Melissa Dell's work. Um, she shows that uh, there was a, uh, a drought in Mexico uh, in uh, certain areas. Because there was a drought in those areas, uh, the the political, the Mexican Revolution was particularly because there were drought in those years in Mexico. Uh, the, the, 
in those years, that meant that in those years, there was more activism from those areas, and that has had a long-term effect on those areas. So it was, so they're comparing areas <coughs> which are next to each other. Some of them had droughts in that period, others didn't have a drought. And if you look at the areas of drought, they are today performing differently because essentially the revolution was much more active in those areas. People were much more upset because they were actually suffering from the drought. Or take the example of the Mississippi floods, the areas that were more flood affected, um, basically uh, that was a time when a lot of the black population left. As a result, agriculture was modernized in those areas because the blacks were often treated as almost like machines and uh, when they left, they modernized agriculture. Those places that were more fair flood affected in the 1920s are now much more productive than the areas that were not. Accidents have long, long effects. Evidence on the beneficial impacts of wars, actually. Uh, Besney and Person show nice evidence suggesting that countries that went into war modernized their fiscal systems faster than others that did in the 19th century. Um, so why do I say all this? I, I, I sort of um, now come, come, come a little bit closer to um, understanding because I want to sort of think about the space for development work, the work that we do, many of you do, um, Shaibal did, What's the space for, uh, for development work in this world? So I, I think one can, at some level, one can never answer the question of determinism. We could say that, look, you know, yes, lots of things change, but these changes are irrelevant. Something big persists. That, you know, fine, yes, human leaders are um, performed differently, but it doesn't matter because in the end, they can't change the big things. We, we, a lot of this is a bit uh, a, philo a philosophical debate that has actually no resolution. We keep can keep saying, "Look, you know, yes, we see some change now, but it's going to all become bad again or good again." Or you know, there's always the option of saying the future is always going to surprise us. We don't. We we might expect that we are we're getting good outcomes, but in fact, they're not. They're going to all come back to some disaster. So in some sense, I don't want to say that I've settled the question of determinism, but I would say that there's not enough evidence for, for determinism for us to get pessimistic about it. I think a better use of history is to think about, you know, the, the place of the nature, the way in which I think the best lesson from history is how often we've been wrong. I think, and in a sense, that's both an antidote to pessimism and optimism, but it should give us a humility. I'll give you an example. In 1989, the Wall Street Journal, which is a very free market US newspaper, celebrated its, its uh, 75th anniversary. And on that occasion, it decided, I'm going to predict what's going to happen. So it predicted and what growth, where will growth be? So it, it predicted that the three surprise high performers over the next 25 years will be Bangladesh, Thailand, and 
Zaire. No, not Zaire. Zimbabwe. And if you take those three, uh, Bangladesh is actually a good performer, very good, even you could say. Thailand is mediocre, and, and Zimbabwe is a disaster. So one out of three, they got right. They also said very confidently that one country that's not going to perform well is China. This is in the Wall Street Journal. You can read the page. It says that China, because it's a, of communist rule, will fail. I think the best lesson of history is, in some sense, I think humility. We, should, we shouldn't let history either intimidate us, but also not try to use history to, to tell us that this, this or that or other predictions will hold. I, I think we... Uh, the best thing we can do as social scientists is to have a certain amount of humility. We can say that, look, you know, we can solve specific problems sometimes. The idea that we're going to just tell the shape of Bihar's next 50 years, I mean, it, to me is always way too ambitious. I, it's not what I try to do. I'm inclined to be optimistic, but I would say that, you know, we, we, whether Bihar will outperform Maharashtra over the next 50 years, God knows. And I think what... The other thing I want to point I wanted to make is just on what what's our role as as economists, as political scientists, as as social scientists, as activists, as uh, bureaucrats, as actors. And I think the the question is um, so this is a, this is an issue that you know I will. When I was in JNU, we were already debating this, where you know, there was always this question, should we contribute to development? Is that just playing into the hands of the bad guys? Because if you think that the, you know, the bad guys are ruling the state, then should we try to make it a little bit better? Or should we just try to sort of uh, you know, hold our whole, you know, just analyze, should we get involved at all? Because if you get involved, you, you might end up helping the wrong people. There's always that possibility that, you know, history is complicated. If once you take it as given, the history is complicated. Uh, should we act? So I want to argue that uh, in, in general, we have to, I think the, the most striking fact about the world in the last, you know, 50 years, 20 years even, is that the, is the good news. And I'll give you a little more recent good news, which is that the, you know, if you take the 20 years leading up to the pandemic, this is not a, you know, some countries do well, some countries do badly. Uh, you know, if you look at world inequality, it's actually falling. And not just because of India and China, you know, Bangladesh and Vietnam and Cambodia and, and Ethiopia and a bunch of other countries actually contribute to, to uh, the, the good news. There's, in fact, Africa in the period to, to 2000 to 2020 actually does much better than between 1960 and 2000. So there's... But all, more remarkably, we see even in countries where, like Liberia, like Sierra Leone, where nothing particularly spectacular is happening economically, we see infant mortality dropping often by half. Between, you know, infant, infant mortality in some countries in Africa have dropped by you know, 40, 50% in the last 
uh, in the last 20 years, often due to very simple things like more vaccination and insecticide-treated bed nets for, for, against malaria. I think that, that already is generating large amounts of uh, increase in welfare. Maternal mortality has dropped by a, between a third and a half. These are really stunning gains in welfare. We, do, we had a, a, right at the beginning, we discussed the fact that, you know, the Bihar is not maybe done as well as social indicators. But if you look at the overall picture, Bihar has, is a much better place for to be born as a child or to have a child now than it was 20 years ago. Even, so I, I think that change, there's been lots of change, mostly for the good. Where we have disasters is in climate change, and that's something I really do worry about. But that's mostly driven by economic success. In some sense, economic failure isn't what driving this economic success is driving that. You know, if you take India and you talk about the caste system, you know, I think the, uh, the first order fact, given how draconian and truly awful the Indian situation was, you know, 80 years ago in terms of discrimination, in terms of inequality of access. We've actually done a remarkable job. There's been remarkable changes. You know, you, we, we sort of, we, we, it's easy to be pessimistic and to, and I, I don't want to say that we have got got anywhere we near we want to go to. I think there's tremendous, there's still discrimination, there's still tremendously unfair. The education system is tremendously unfair, I, I would still say. But with that, we, you know, the gaps have all been closing and been closing dramatically if you lo look at that. If you look at gender norms, I mean, take the country where women's education has gone ahead of men's education. That's a Muslim country, Bangladesh. That's a country where women are now, the now fraction of women completing high school is now cross men. These changes are, in the end, there is lots of change. And uh, I think we, by being, and this related point, that I think by being too suspicious, I think we often end up being maybe too, because we think that, you know, there is always the potential for the elites to capture, for, you know, change to be defeated, we're often too suspicious. As an example of our work in Indonesia, it's the work we did in Indonesia a while ago, we, we, we did an experiment where we either let the whole village, got the whole village together to decide who were to be the beneficiaries of an anti-poverty program, who are the poor, or we let the elites decide. And the first order fact is the elites don't decide any differently from anybody else. The second fact, perhaps more depressing, is that both decide extremely badly, that in a sense, what happens is that the data is terrible, people get very bored with saying, you know, who's trying to rank people, and they make mistakes. And I think we, because our bias is to assume that the biggest problem is elite capture. We designed the system to prevent elite capture. In fact, the biggest problems were 
you know, the data is bad. Nobody knows anything. Nobody actually puts enough effort into it. So there was there were many things we could have done, but we because we started with the presumption that the really the biggest problem is elite capture, we went in one direction and in a sense failed the people who we were trying to help uh, by, because we assumed that the biggest problem is elite capture. So I think I want to emphasize that I think. We, the way we think about the world is critical to, to, to how we design policies. What's an important question? You know, should we fight um, elite capture? Should we fight bad data? And uh, it seems obvious that it should be elite capture that we fight, except that that's what, and that's what we did. But in fact, the evidence suggests that that was the wrong choice. Uh, I want to, and I think changes, I think also there's lots of evidence of change. I told you about this, uh, these work on, you know, where women become panchayat heads. Uh, over time, what they show is that in places where by, because of the running of the lottery for the assignment of which villages get reserved, people were actually, women were heads of the village for two consecutive sessions. The third time, people are much more willing to vote for women candidates even without any reservation. So people's views on, people's views change. And I think that's a general message for many of this, much of this work is that, you know, we, we in UP, when we did some work during elections and we all we did, we said is that don't, don't necessarily vote on, vote on development issues, not on caste. We didn't say which caste. And then we saw that there was a substantial change in the way people voted. So I want to say that it's, I, I think that the idea that people are very, very determined, that determined meaning, not determined in the sense that I'm going to do things, but determined in the sense that I am a product of my history and nothing else, see, just doesn't seem to be true. We seem to be able to generate many changes when we try. So to conclude, I want to say that in the determinist view, the good news exists because the good news I was reporting, none of the interventions matter. The ruling, ruling elite, they have tolerated the changes because they don't matter. Hard to falsify, but suppose this were the case. Is there a reason for us to hold back? Should we continue doing what we're doing, which is trying to improve things? Or is there a reason to be uh, reason to hold back? And I want to argue that there is no particular reason to hold back. I want three, to make three points. It, I don't think that the elites are particularly, I don't think they have a unified collective interest. I don't think that they're unified. They understand their collective interests necessarily very well. I don't think they're particularly competent in holding on. Uh, they're not particularly, I think, even when they are trying to hold on, it's, they're also under pressure. They also make changes. When, when Suharto was in Suharto was a dictator in Indonesia when he was investing in education. He could have invested badly or he invested well. It turned out that he got advice mostly from the USAID, which made him invest in broad-based schooling, and that increased uh, GDP by a substantial amount. So it's not, I, I think the idea that there is a universal plan of the elites to hold everyone down is implausible at best. So I think we should just act 
we should do. Uh, so I, I, I believe that as economists, our main job remains to stick up for policies which are based on economic analysis and the best data policy uh, possible are good policies. And we should not worry about the fact that, you know, it could be that this, this particular, you know, the government it will take credit for it. Let it take credit for it. I don't think that we are weak. I think the standing in the way of democracy is not going to make us any more effective. Doesn't mean that we should ignore institutions, culture, politics, or other implementation constraints when we make such recommendations. Just that those constraints need to be specific. Tell us what the constraint is and we will react to it or not. We should not take as given that something bad will happen, so let's not do it. I think we need to be, we shouldn't take as given that it's only bad things uh, that stop good good from happening. Uh, Good often doesn't happen because we just didn't think about it hard enough. We didn't do enough planning. We didn't organize well enough. That's often as important a factor in stopping good as as the more classic factors of you know elite authority uh, politics. Uh, I, I don't deny those are important, but I think that we we should all, we shouldn't take it as given that that's more important than getting good data. Uh, you know, doing good research, identifying what works, pushing for it, being patient, uh, arguing for uh, our cases. You know, this probably, uh, my goal here, as I said at the beginning, is, I think, to promote humility, but also to guide practical action. I hope this helps. And I hope, you know, the spirit of Shaibal will appreciate this lecture. Thank you very much.